and uh, offer our time to Jesus. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is where we are, you want to turn to it, it says that uh, this book is a revelation of Jesus. It's an unveiling, it's an uncovering, it's a, uh, it's a surprise. You're supposed to be reading this again, oh my gosh, what a shock. And, uh, and then it says, blessings are all those who read the words of this book, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. All right, so I'm going to pray that we will take it to heart this morning, all right? What's said in this, we're going to read really just seven verses from chapter two. And uh, the Bible says there's a blessing that goes with that. Happiness and joy will follow you, and you'll also know how to walk through life. So that's pretty good, isn't it? It's motivational. So let's pray as we, uh, we begin here this morning. And so, Lord, we too are a church now receiving this book written by the Apostle John thousands of years later after it was written. That, Lord, is a living word, a prophecy, an immediate word from you for now. And I pray, God, that each one of us can hear it in our own setting, in our own life journeys today, and that you will move us into a passion for your Son, Jesus. Not as a yoke, but as a joy. Something would break in us today. I pray even those who don't know you here this morning might begin a personal relationship with you this morning, might accept you as Lord and Savior, might get started in their walk with you. And Lord, that our hearts might be set on fire. By the Holy Spirit, you might impart to us a love and a passion for the person of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, uh, go with me to chapter 2. And I want to encourage you, downstairs there is a, a sheet, which is a kind of an outline of the book, uh, on one page and some commenta- commentaries and some books you may want to pick up for those who want to get deeper into it. But I want to encourage you to read the book in one setting, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in it for a few months. Uh, if, you didn't, if you weren't here for the first message, which was an introduction, you want to get that. It was two weeks ago uh, as we start on this book. We're going to be in it for a few months. It's, it's a tremendous book, and it's meant to, to emotionally move you and sweep over you. That's the power of reading one book of the Bible in one setting. It's 22 chapters. It'll probably take you a half hour or so, and and uh, just let it speak to you. Let it emotionally move you. There's all these pictures in it that are meant to evoke uh, emotion in you and, again, move you to Jesus and the Lordship of Christ. And the message of the book really is very simple. It's very clear. Uh, there's a lot of hidden little images in there and pictures that we don't fully understand what they mean. But the message of the book is clear as day, crystal clear, as you'll see as we move through it. Uh, and because John, the apostle, was writing this book about 68 A.D. or maybe 90 A.D., we're not sure exactly when, but in the first century, there was a time when the Roman Empire was ruling the known world at that time, and that the, whether it's Nero or Domitian, has unleashed a great persecution against the churches in Asia Minor, one of the provinces. And so Christians are being uh, killed for their faith, they're on the run, and as one scholar wrote, it looked like that Christianity was on the verge of extinction because the pressure was so great to quit and leave Christ, and, the, and uh, they were under what the Bible calls a philipsis, is a Greek word, it means intense pressure. And so at this moment, John has been exiled kind of as a prisoner into an island, and he, he gets this word from God, the book of Revelation, and he writes it to these seven churches in Asia Minor to encourage them and exhort them. Really, it's written to two groups of people. The first is uh, affluent, compromising Christians, folks who are Believers like you and I sitting in his pews, but who are flirting with the world and are under pressure because they're losing jobs, they're losing their home, some are being killed for their faith, some are seeing their children suffer and saying, you know what, I don't need it. I want an abundant, joyful life. 
I'm not looking for suffering. And so you got a bunch of Christians now who are flourishing in their jobs and now saying, you know what? Uh, I'm going to compromise with the world. I'm not going to follow wholeheartedly. And they flirt and engage in what the image given later in the book is the beast. And uh, they begin to worship the beast like their pagan neighbors. And what I mean by the beast is an image given in chapters 17, 18, and 19 that the devil himself incarnates in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is referred to as the beast. The political, economic, propaganda, advertising machine of the Roman Empire is inundating the churches. And basically, it's either come with us as the beast or you will pay a price and die. And uh, they're full of lies that the beast of the Roman Empire is flushing out into people that aren't true. And so the call of the book is for believers to say, reject the lies of the culture and to witness to what is true. And what the book says that by doing this as believers, you will pay a price. In fact, it says at the end of time, the conflict with the beast will be so intense that many will die. Could you imagine, again, if we got here this Sunday morning and we found out that 10 of us were killed this past week? And you don't know what's going to happen this following week coming up. And again, I wonder how many of us would be here in the room today, knowing that that may happen to folks who are faithful to the witness of Jesus. I mean, some of us, I mean, if our neighbors are mad at us, we're freaked out. And, uh, and so the beast today, again, it manifests differently in different cultures. We would say, we would take this American Western society, everything from the, the lust for affluence, the drive for money, for new clothes, for the beautiful look, for people to approve of you and think you're wonderful, for the celebrities in the front page of the newspaper and your know, celebrity worship and television and, and a drive to be comfortable. Those that all spews out of the same source of the beast which says to you, forget about following Jesus and paying a price and suffering and forget about that. Come with us. This is where really life is. And you're like, yeah, I think you're right. you know. And you can feel the pull. And again, if you're going to read this book properly, you've got to feel the breath of the beast on you to pull you away from Jesus into its grip where you are absorbed until eventually your Christianity is almost like non-existent. Your salt is gone. You're no different than your neighbors. You live just like them. That's the goal of the beast, to absorb you. And he writes the letter to these folks who are under tremendous pressure to give in to the power of the beast. Now, can I hear an amen for that? I hope you can all feel it. I know I feel it every day. And so as I make decisions and you make decisions, where should I live? What are my priorities? How do I spend my money? What are my goals of my life? How do I treat people? How do I approach the word of God in terms of my now, how do I approach Scripture and what God says versus all the messages coming at, them, coming at me every day? And uh, what, are, what are the goals for my children? And again, the beast and the culture has goals of what success is, and then God has his. And which voice am I listening to? And so, again, in summary, the message of the book is that if Christians, if followers of Jesus are faithful to bear witness to what is true, which is Jesus, against the claims of the beast, the book says, this book says, it will provoke a conflict and a clash that at the end of time will be so intense that it will cost the lives of many believers. Now, last week when uh, Pastor Jackson was here from Uganda, he didn't get a chance to share about Idi Amin. And because he was there in the church of Uganda, lived through the reign of Idi Amin, where he killed all, you know, he killed the pastors, the Christians. He was, he was wiping them out there for, a, for you know, a good decade or so. And uh, they lived through this book. But the Bible says that that, will, that day will come for the church at large. 
and make no mistake about it before the end of time. And so, because the beast will not tolerate those who oppose it and witness to Jesus. That's the point of this book. All right? So that's number one. So that applies, I think, to all of us in this room. As we struggle living in New York City, the financial, advertising, commercial, military power of the world, New York City, United States of America, we're right in the center of it. And how do we stand firm and faithful to Jesus? So that's why Revelation is a great book for us. But secondly, it's written to people who are suffering and who are weary of following Jesus. And the book is meant to be a comfort and an encouragement and to give you hope to stand firm and not quit. Because sometimes when you're standing firm, you get very tired. And this book is meant to instill strength for people about what is true and what is not true and to hang in there. So, and to persevere. Now, the book is written... So, I don't know, some of you are in, in, in maybe number two as well. All right, let's go to this little map here. Because uh, if you go to chapter two, verse one, uh, actually, the end of chapter one, it says, The seven stars of the, of the angels are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The last, last verse of chapter one is, The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, what's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks is there's specific letters written to these. Seven churches, and I, I tried to. to uh, this map is not quite clear, but uh, this is Asia Minor at that time, and present-day Turkey. anybody have anybody been to Turkey on one of these uh, trips? They take folks out there to visit the archaeological ruins of Ephesus and Smyrna. anybody been there? All right. Well, we have some Greek fr- folks who come first service. They're from uh, Cyprus over here and, and Greece, and everyone from Greek and Cy- Greek and Cyprus they go to vacation apparently over here. And, but there's lots of great tours because a lot of archaeological work has been done in, in these seven cities that are mentioned here in chapters 2 and 3. And it's really, for those of you interested in history and archaeology, it is, is absolutely fascinating. And again, it opens up the whole book because John, the apostle, was bishop of Ephesus right here. And he traveled around to these seven churches. He knew them well. He kind of gave oversight to them. And so he writes to each one and writes in quite specific detail. And Jesus says, I'm writing to these lampstands, and I walk in the midst of these lampstands. So Jesus says, I'm in the middle of these churches, and I know what's going on. And in fact, what each letter begins with, I know, I know. Jesus says, I know what's really going on here. And what he's saying is, it may look on the surface like the church is one thing, but he begins by saying, I know really what's going on underneath. Now, he says, so he says for example, one church, you ha- I know you have the reputation of being alive. People look at you all over and think, that's an alive church. He says, but I know that you're dead. He says, but other church, I know that you think you're rich. And you got it all together. But I know that you're poor. And you're naked and wretched and blind. And so he is, remember, if you remember two weeks ago, he is the glorious son of man with blazing eyes. And he walks into each of these churches and he cuts through all the garbage. And he discerns the heart of what's going on, and he exposes the lies. And he calls them to be a lighthouse and to be a lampstand. That's their calling. That's our calling, to be a lampstand. He wants to get rid of all the stuff that's hindering them from being a lampstand. But this first letter, as we're going to read in just a minute, is so heavy because it's the first, it's the Ephesus church, John's church. And Timothy used to be the pastor there. In fact, the apostle Paul spent two, over two years in Ephesus. And it was a great church, one of the primary churches in the empire, and uh, had a lot of history to it. And these Christians had been through a lot. In fact, uh, in fact Michael, go to the next thing. In, in Ephesus, before I actually read it, Ephesus was, was a big city, kind of like New York and Los Angeles today. It was, a, it was a happening place. It was not a small town. 
And uh, it was a political and commercial power. It was a beautiful city with great temples. Uh, it was known for its idolatry. In fact, they, they actually have many, many uh, finds of archaeology of Ephesian charms they would sell and make a lot of money all over the empire. And they were sold all over the place. And there was a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located there called the Temple to Artemis. And some of you might have heard that. It's in Acts chapter 19. And it was all kinds of erotic worship and rituals and sexuality and sensuality. And they actually had two large temples devoted to the worship of the emperor. So this was a city that was very, very wicked and very, very beast-like. But when Paul gets there in Acts 19, a tremendous church is planted. They end up burning witchcraft and... And, and uh, you know, in fact, some of the people who made these Ephesian charms, one guy named Demetrius, is mentioned in Acts 19. And uh, they bring Paul into the amphitheater, which you can go to today. It seats 25,000 people. And in Acts 19, it speaks about how there was almost a riot. And they're yelling, they're yelling for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All the crowd, and they're mad at Paul, they want to kill him. Because they're losing business. Because all these folks are becoming Christians, and they're not buying their Ephesian charms anymore. And uh, then finally a guy quiets him down and says, Men of Ephesus, we know that you know, this great Artemis fell from heaven. Nothing's going to touch her. And, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible scene where this church, over a period of 10, 20, 30, 40 years, has been very faithful, has worked very hard, uh, has really been a leader of the rest of the churches. But something is deeply wrong now because there's something we're going to try to hit today, and may God give us grace to grab it, that... Jesus says, if you don't get this thing together, I'm going to remove the lampstand from the whole church. I'm going to go back for a minute. Of the, of the seven churches, can we go back? Here we go. This is the only one to which he says, Ephesus, he says, if you do not repent and do this, I am going to remove my lampstand from you. In other words, you will not even be a church anymore. You'll be extinct. I'm going to come and remove my presence from your midst, and you will just be an empty shell. There will no longer be any light shining out of you. You will be dead. Pretty heavy, isn't it? If you picture a lampstand, Jesus refers to these churches as golden lampstands. Golden meaning precious, durable, of great value. So Jesus loves his church. But he's saying there's something going on here in Ephesus. And he starts out the first letter to Ephesus saying this is so important that if you do not respond to what I am saying, I want you to know that I'm going to come to you, we're going to read it, I'm going to remove my lampstand, that you will not even be called a church anymore. You'll just be a nice club of people. And that's why for me, as I actually have been in this text for a while, it's a very sobering text. So with that, let's begin reading in verse chapter 2, verse 1, just seven verses. Just imagine the church like us. They're sitting down you know, on their Sunday morning, you know, and, and here comes this word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the seven churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So let me just stop here for a second. So he, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. And, and that word in Greek is, he goes, your strenuous, your hard work, your, your hard labor, even to the point of being weary, you've been faithful 
In fact, even when you didn't just resist the beast on the outside, as on the inside, false teachers came in with false teachings and doctrines, false apostles he refers to them here, he goes, you realize they were evil and false and you got rid of them. You were so zealous and committed to my truth and a truth of pure Christianity. And so he's commending them for being patient, for enduring, and for holding firm. It's really quite a compliment here. And actually, and then he goes on, verse 4. This is the key verse. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Think of Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall, all right? Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, false teachers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, which is the word for repent, to him who repents, to him who responds to me, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. You'll have real life. Don't believe the lies of the beast, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Now, question is, what does it mean? What, I, verse 4 is the key verse. I, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, I'm in the light here. Thank you. Um, don't put up yet, Michael. Now, we all say, okay, you've forsaken your first love. That means your love for Jesus, right? I, I, I used to love Jesus, but now it's like it's kind of lukewarm. And that's true. That's what's going on here. They're working so hard for God. They're doing all of these things, enduring dealing with false teaching, keeping the church in order, resisting the beast externally, resisting, resisting the beast internally. But something's happened to their inner life with God, and they've lost something. It's a height from which they've fallen. And it's this thing that they've forsaken their first love. This word forsaken is the word for divorce. It's a very... In fact, that sentence... In, I, I don't know how to even communicate this in, in English, because the way the sentence is written is very unusual in Greek. And what he's saying is this, I have... It's like he has in big, bold print... I have against you this, and for and the word in big bold is forsaken or abandoned your first love to Jesus. Like, like in a way that'd be like in a neon sign for them to read it, uh, because it's so significant. Now, all right, Michael, put it up. Because I hold this against you. Those, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've abandoned the word in First Corinthians seven for the forsaken is you've divorced your first love. Now they have no idea they've done this. They think they're doing great. But Jesus comes and says, I want to cut through all that to the heart of the matter, and you've lost something. Now, how do I love Jesus? I mean, how do I get to this love of Jesus? Now, commentators basically fall into two categories. They'll say, this refers to your love for Jesus. Or they say, it refers to you having an experience of the love of Jesus. Well, I want to say to you today, and then it, then it results in you loving other people. But really, I, I'd rather put it this way. It does refer to you loving Jesus. But the only way you will love Jesus, as it says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And what I want to get to today as, as we get underneath the layers is that they got away from the experience of living in the love of God for me. So I want to say, Michael, put the next thing up. 
It's living in the experience of the love of God, your belovedness. And this leads to loving God. So you've got to catch this, because I, I, you're not going to love God without living in the experience of being loved by God. You catch that? It's very, very important. In fact, someone sat me down to, to say that the first service is, Pete, I needed about a half hour on this point to get it, to really grasp it, that the, the way that we are energized to love God is to live daily and to nurture the experience of the love of God for me. The, the theological word used a lot in like old Bibles is, you are the beloved, loved of God. And what happened to these Ephesians is they were very moral. They were good people working hard, but they were not lovers of Jesus any longer. They had lost something. They were faithful. They were doers, but they'd lost it. Karl Barth, I think, says it well. Go up to the next quote here. Michael? Yeah, we go. Karl Barth was, was probably the greatest 20th century theologian. And uh, in his introduction to one of his great theology books, he wrote this called Church Dogmatics. He wrote, in Christianity, every day, you have to start at the beginning. I want you to think about that. In Christianity, every day, you have to start at the beginning. Because otherwise, he writes, what happens is you move on to bigger things, quote, bigger things. I'm learning about missions. I'm learning about worship. I'm learning about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm moving about prophecy. I'm learning about justice and the poor and racism and building a church and leading Bible studies. And you're, he goes... Once you do that, you end up in a Gnosticism of like this second-class Christianity, and you, you move out from the start and the foundation. We never leave this place. The Ephesians had left it. That in our lives, every day, I don't care if you've been a Christian one day, or 25, 30, 40 years, we all start every day at the beginning. Amazing grace. Oh my gosh. That I'm a Christian is a miracle. That again, if I knew, if, if I, if I, you know, I look at myself and say, it is, what are you doing here today? In a church. That's a miracle. And the fact that you can stand before God with all of your sin and rebellions and your, of your whole life, your self-righteousness, your arrogance, my arrogance, and I stand before God and He loves me for who I am in spite of how I've lived. It's called amazing grace. And that I'm melted by the love of God and the beauty of God who would love a sinner like me. That is the start of every day for all of us. It's called it's the gospel of grace. I don't ever leave that. So I'm working hard, I'm doing stuff, but when I leave this, I'm lost. The Ephesians have left it. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't understand. This is extremely serious. Because if you continue on this, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove my lampstand from the whole place. So you can have a church where everyone's working hard and doing stuff and even growing in number. And Jesus is saying, I'm not even there anymore. I left. Because the love for me as a person is gone. And the motives of what's being done here is out of kilter. And these Ephesians have no idea how far they have fallen. I love in verse 5, he goes, remember the height from which you have fallen. Now think of your honeymoon, okay? You first became a Christian. The honeymoon, oh, the love of Jesus for me! I remember, I, 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 was, I was out of control. I was just, you know, I was just 
And I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't, I never experienced an unconditional love. And the word there is agape. You've left your first agape. The unconditional love that, that has no strings attached. I mean, I'd never, I never knew a love that like that. The world knows nothing of it. Other religions, Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, there's nothing in other world religions like Christianity where God chooses and sets his love on people like you and me simply because of who you are. He loves you, period. It's not, well, Rocky, if you shape up tomorrow, I'll love you more. No, he loves you because of Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, shed his blood on the cross for you. You stand before God washed clean as if you've never committed a sin. And he loves you as much today as he's going to love you 100,000 years from now. That's the miracle of the gospel. And I've got to remind myself every day of amazing grace and experience the love of God for me that this is unbelievable. And as Karl Barth said, this great theologian, you have to start every day at the beginning. And if you don't, you lose that passion and love for that person of Jesus. But it's so difficult to stay there. It's so difficult. But go back to the elder brother. I think what happens is, you know, I, I put the, I, I, this picture of the uh, prodigal son by Rembrandt again. It's not as clear, but, I, you know, remember, this is, comes from Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And you've all seen it before, and those of you who have been here a while. And there's the father, represents God the father, and here's the son who is receiving the love of the father and experiencing those hands upon him that you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And uh, the son is just broken and beaten, but he's living in his place of just receiving the love of the father. And that's the place we're to live in. But the struggle is we become like him. And that's the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And what's happened to the Ephesians is they've become like him. And now they know a lot of Bible. They know about what's well, true, but now they're cold and crabby and not tender and not soft. And, and they're critical of this guy and they're angry at God because God owes me. And he's not giving me what I deserve. And uh, they've lost something. They're, they're angry at others. They're angry at God. They're grumbling. He's grumbling, complaining. And he represents where the Ephesians are. But I don't know about you, but I end up here very quickly, don't you? I, I, I don't know. I start out here and by afternoon I'm back over here. And I really struggle to be here, to live in the grace of God for me every day. But see, this is what makes you a mellow... The way you know you're living in the grace of God, in the love of God for you, that you are his beloved, is the way you treat other people. Because this mellows you out. This takes the edge off. Your critical spirit, your judgmentalism, your anger, your frustration, your impatience, because you know from where you come. So people, see, the thing is, the Ephesians, I think, knew the right doctrine. I mean, I'm sure they probably wrote some good theology books on it. But they lived over here, like the elder brother. Just like us, we can know about the love of God and not experience it. We can know about this love of God which melts me, which is so beautiful and wondrous. Remember Paul prays in Ephesians 3, verse 14, I pray that you might know the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of the love of Jesus which surpasses knowledge. Because that's my prayer for you, that you might know that love which surpasses knowledge. It's an experiential thing. And you might be filled with it to all the fullness of God. I, you know, define your... So, so somehow, you know, when you first become a Christian, often, not all the time, I know I was in a honeymoon stage. Oh, the love of God for me. But then what happens is you kind of, you're supposed to grow up where your love matures. And your experience of the love of God, you stay in that place, but hopefully you're growing into a mother and father of the faith. And it may not be goosey feelings every day, but your experience of the love of the Father is still where you start every day. 
You never leave that place. But you're simply now maturing in your faith as a mother and father of the faith. By the way, I've got a quote somewhere. But I'm talking here about how do you define yourself? Like, who are you? Thomas Merton was a great monk, written a number of books, Seven Story Mountain. And he's dead now, but he was once asked, who are you, Thomas Merton? And he says, I am one who is loved by Christ. Think about that. Who am I? I am one loved by Christ. Who are you? Now, if you're not going to say, I am one loved by Christ, you're probably going to do, well, I'm one who is, you know, I have these possessions. I've got this degree. I do this for a living. You know, these people think I'm, my identity is based on other things. But true Christianity is my identity is based on his love for me. And my personal worth is not in my parents thinking I'm great, in people telling me I'm great, not in my past achievements, not in my reputations, not in my talents. But you've got to hear these words. Michael, go to that. You've got to hear these words and define yourself radically as one loved by God. Now, your sin, we're going to do communion. Your sin is deep, much deeper than you realize. Your lostness is much deeper than you realize. And it takes a lifetime of growing in Christ to realize the depth of our sinfulness. It is total depravity. And yet, God loves you. And if you accept Jesus, if you haven't done it yet, and you become adopted into his family, you become his son. You become his daughter. And I like what 1 John says over and over again. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, because he loved us, so we must love one another. And he goes, oh, how great is the Father's love for us that we should be called children of God, that he's lavished on us such love that we would be children. He's overwhelmed by this reality of the experience and love of God. He goes, how can we not love each other? And he's constantly going back to that. But it's defining yourself radically as, I am loved by God. And I love this verse in Matthew 3, 16. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's what God the Father said over Jesus. But that's what God, if you're a Christian here, that's what he says over you. You don't have to do anything to perform to get his love for you. He loves you, period, based on Christ. That's the miracle of the gospel. That's the miracle of Christianity, that he loves you for you. You don't have to do anything to prove it. Now, I struggle with staying in that place because all the voices of the beast tell me, hey, you know what? You better make a lot of money. Hey, you know what? You better get yourself a big house. You better get yourself an IRA. You better retire early. You better have comfort. You better have these people think good of you. You better accomplish this and that. And I get pulled away from that center of my identity, of my core identity. If this is who I am, I am no. I am free. I am one loved by God. I have nothing to prove to anybody. And I live in the experience of that love of God for me in Christ. And it just ushers up. I love him back. But this is the first. This has to happen for there to be a love back. And um, it's that word I can say to God, Abba, Father, Dad. Remember, Jesus gave us the privilege of calling God Abba or Daddy. And Jesus knows that unless the Ephesians get this right of love, simple love for the person of Jesus, they will be absorbed by the beast over time. That unless this thing, go back to Karl Barth's quote, Unless you start every day at the beginning of Amazing Grace, maybe not this year, maybe next year, three years, five years, seven years, you will be absorbed by the beast. You will buy into the culture, you will buy into those voices, and you will live no different than your neighbors. Because this is the only way 
to consistently resist the pressure of all those voices that tell you who you are, and they're all lies. I don't know, how, how, how do you live, let's go back to where I was, how do you live like this? I mean, how do I live in the fact of God's love for me? How do you do it? I, I mean, everyone's different in this room, but you've got to somehow figure out how can I live on a daily basis and nurture this love of God for me? How can I know experientially the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge? You've got to ask yourself that question because there is no more important question than that. So you say, oh, Pete, I'm getting a degree. I'm really busy at work. I'm, I'm, move, I'm moving up the ladder here. I've got four kids. I've got a lot of problems. I, I, I must have three, four people come to me on the way out. Pete, you don't know how busy I am. What? You've got to hear the word of Jesus in this text. It's going to be different for different ones of us at different seasons of our life. So you're in high school over here or junior high. You're under tremendous pressure to not live there. But what this text is saying is that whatever it takes for you to get in a position of experiencing the love of God, do it. For me, I have to be in the Word and meditate on the Word so it ignites me. I've been reading Ephesians in my quiet time. It just sets me alive. Others of us, it's worship, being in a context of worship. It's fellowship. For others of us, you know, where people are affirming to me, Pete, you don't have to prove anything. We love you for who you are. And, and, And help me redo those messages that I grew up with growing up. I'm living in a community. For others of us, you know, it's, it's getting alone in solitude for a half a day every month. Or going on a retreat. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, find it. On how can I nurture this experience of the love of God? Because what he's saying is, if we don't nurture it, and you lose it like the Ephesians is, he's saying that over time, the, it's like, whether you're an individual or family or church, there'll be nothing left. And do not underestimate the power of the beast to snuff out the oil lamp in your life. And we take this often very lightly. Again, go back to verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Your love, the simple love for the person of Jesus. We're all very, very busy. We're all very, very distracted. Things happen. We get bitter towards someone. We get a sin in our life. We don't want to confess it. You know, we start... We start hanging around wrong people that could care less about Jesus. We get into some new issue. And before we know it, Jesus is a million miles away. And so, I just, you got to hear this. There is nothing more important in your life than somehow figuring out how can I cultivate living in the experience of the love of God for me. What does that mean for you personally? Because whatever that is, whether it's classes or a word of worship, you've got to nurture it, back to Karl Barth, every single day. In Christianity, every day, you have to start at the beginning. So maybe some of you are new, others of you have been around a very long time. But to be transformed by the love of God and fall into the arms of the Father is the Christian life. To be melted by the absolute beauty of Jesus who loves you. Just to be melted by that. And it's just, you can't help but love him in return and just love other people. It's just, it just, there's no other way to go. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing nurturing that experience of the love of God for you? I got good news for you. You probably haven't nurtured it very well. Like I get, I get pulled off track all the time. But I thank God that his love for me, even when I don't love him, he still loves me. I forget about him and I'm in 40 different things. But he still, his grace and his love for me has not changed as if I'd been there every minute of every day. 
because his love for me is not based on my performance. It's based on Jesus and his performance and his life and his death. And i got to constantly meditate on that reality and for me through the word, and it ignites me and sets me on fire. Look at verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, if you... Now, you got to hear this. This is a very serious potential judgment to lose a lampstand, but it's a wonderful promise. To him who overcomes, to him who repents, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was a symbol of, a, of Ephesus, tree of life, on their, on their coins. He goes, well, I'm going to give you the real tree of life, not the Ephesus tree, not the beast tree of life, the tree of life, which is life, life of the paradise from Genesis chapter 2. If you will follow me, you will really experience life, but go back to the beginning and don't leave that. Let that be your life and make you mellow and soft like that younger son of the prodigal son and kneel at his feet and renounce all of your self-righteousness and pride. And he goes, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Get back to where you were. Maybe when you first started out and start there. So we're going to do right now something as a body. Worship team, come forward. We're going to take communion. And this is going to be something we're going to do to experience the love of God together in worship and uh, to make it an experience, okay?